Now tonight we're coming to the book of First John. And last week we had a, an appreciation of John the Apostle. And I hope that it has expanded your uh, understanding of the, the giant that he was. You know, he is spoken of as the apostle of love, the one who laid on Jesus' breast, and so on. But when you really dig into his life in the latter half of the first century, we, we learned of the giant stand that he took and how God used him for the further establishment of the early church. And so we're coming to this first epistle, 1 John. And tonight we're going to be looking at the opening chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." Let's bow briefly in prayer for help. O oh God, our Father, we come to this portion of your holy word. We thank thee for the ministry of the Apostle John. What a pastor he was. What a, a defender of the faith he was. We pray that we may learn of him. We pray that thy word will speak to our hearts this hour, and that we will be blessed. Come, therefore, let the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit shine in unto us, and we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. Now, our key verse tonight is the verse 3. 
It's not only a key verse of this chapter, but I believe of the whole book. And this becomes the thesis of all that John is saying in this epistle. And you'll notice that it begins with that. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. But it's not that 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 I want us to dig into. It's the next that. This is the big one. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. That. And it has the significance of in order that. With the definite purpose. Ye also may have fellowship with us. This is the reason that John is writing to these believers, that they would have fellowship with, and again, it's the plural, it's not just John. John is not a pope. He is not taking on everything to himself. He is one of the apostles. He is an ambassador of Christ. He is a speaker of the common faith. He is calling men and women into this apostolic fellowship that ye also may have fellowship with us. And then he goes on to define that. And truly, surprisingly, you might say, wonderfully, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in our general Christian lives, we use the word fellowship quite loosely. I hear that there's going to be some fellowship after the meeting tonight. Now, you know what that means. We're going to sit or stand. We're going to eat and talk and commune with one another in the best possible free Presbyterian way of food and chatter. That we call fellowship. You could invite your neighbor in for fellowship. You could even offer fellowship on the phone. And some elderly saints do that. My mother talks to another lady who attends the Oma Free Presbyterian Church, and they can talk for an hour on the phone. And many would call such sweet, encouraging conversations fellowship. But I assure you that when John is speaking here about fellowship, he is thinking of something far greater, far more wonderful. Now it is that Greek term called koinonia. And you may have seen that in various Christian circles. The apostates and the ecumenicals, they, they seem to throw this word all around, koinonia. But it's a blessed word. And it's more than just a little talk over the fence or a casual introduction. It is partnership. It's like the boss at your work saying to you, you've worked here long enough now that I want you to be my partner. I want you to be on title in this business, to enter into all the vision and the challenges and the rewards 
of the work of this business. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? You wouldn't go home and say, I had fellowship with the boss today. You would say, I have a glorious opportunity that I never thought possible. And I'm sure that's what these recipients of this letter of John were thinking. How is it all possible that we could have fellowship with the Father and with the Lord Jesus? Now, I want to say a little added statement here. This partnership, this koinonia, this fellowship, it is not just to imitate the Lord or to imitate God. It is participation. It is to enter into and enjoy amazing blessings, the life of God within our souls and that for all eternity. And we're going to call this the miracle of the new birth. Regeneration. The miracle of being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son and brought into this wonderful union, this partnership with the Lord. Now in this book of John, he describes this six times as believers being born of God. Now, our problem as long-toothed Christians is that we get used to these terms. We don't think it's strange for somebody to talk about being born of God. But you take yourself back to the first century and to being first-generation Christian. Nobody's father or mother talked like that. Nobody ever spoke to them about being born of God. And yet John states it six times, and I have them all recorded here in my notes, right in this book, and you can search for them in your Bible reading. And I certainly would ask you to read through this book in the week and weeks that are before us. Now, the other way John keeps up this miracle of partnership with God is to use the statement to know God, to know God. Now, again, we get used to these statements, to know God. Well, that's part of our Christian profession. But just think about it. Pagan people, first-generation Christians, and John says to them, and he does so very positively, he's not quizzing them, it's not an interrogation. He says, you know God. You are brought into this partnership with God. And when we read some of these chapters, we may do that next week in chapter 2, I would like to point out that the key word is gnosko. And it means to know God in heart. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just an observation. It is to know God in heart. And those who are born of God, they know God in heart. And they have been brought into this wonderful partnership. 
this fellowship, this koinonia with God. And that's what this book is all about. This verse 3 is the thesis statement of the whole book. And I want to give you, and I see some of their pens out, and you're taking notes. You might want to take a new page at this point. And I want you to jot down with me a very simple outline. Now, you're probably going to think it's simplistic. But believe me, I have labored on this hard, and I want it to be simple. Chapter 1 is fellowship with God. How come? How is it possible? Chapter 2, what happens? And we see, well, the very first one, that ye sin not. Keep his commandments. And I, I think I got 10 headings on that one, subheadings on that one. What happens when you are brought into this partnership? You're born of God and you know God in heart. Chapter 3, from whom, or you might say by whom, are we brought into this fellowship? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, who cares? Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. And there are those who would refute, and there are heretics and antichrists and so on, so who cares? And then chapter 5, whosoever believeth. It's all about faith. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So that's my outline. Take it for what it's worth. I hope that it will be a help to you to grapple with this book. A book that I must say that when you first sit down to study is difficult to divide. Difficult to get a handle on where this is all going. But I think I've got a picture here. The great theme is partnership. Being brought into this personal union, fellowship, with the Father and with the Son. And you can't have one without the other. And you have all of one, you have all of the other. We'll dig into that in the future too. And then we have in this the wonderful fellowship that we enjoy in and through the Lord Jesus. So tonight we restrict ourselves to chapter 1. That should be enough. The first chapter, how is this possible that a sinner, a son or daughter of Adam, with all the depravity of human nature, with all the guilt and the sin nature of a one living under the curse, can be brought into this amazing communion and fellowship with God through the Son? Well, what I see in chapter 1 are three revelations. <clears throat> I call them revelations because no man would ever think of them. No man could ever come up with them. 
No man could ever dis give a dissertation on them. These are revealed from heaven. The first revelation is of God's Son. Let's read verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was the Father, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye may also have the fellowship with us. This is fundamental Christianity. The glorious person of our Lord Jesus. And John was an eyewitness. He heard with his ear. He saw with his eyes. He handled with his hands. And from the beginning. Now that's a difficulty, I must say. Is that the beginning of creation? Is that a way back into eternity past? Some would leave it here. From ever there was a gospel message. From ever there was a gospel. There's always been this message. The message of the Son. John testified of the Lord's teaching ministry. We have heard his voice. John was a fisherman. He heard the call to leave the boats and the nets and to follow and become a disciple of Christ. The Lord promised, I will make you to become fishers of men. And he did. What a ministry. What an impact. Three years of life living daily with the Savior. John testified of his physical nature of having a fully human body. And that's become very relevant now in the latter half of the first century with the seeds of the false heresies of the, of the Gnostics, and those who were denying the real person, the physical nature of the Lord Jesus. John testified that he saw him, he heard him, he handled him. And of course, he could convey all this in a very clear and personal way. Speaking of those heresies, there were the basically two great extremes. The Gnostics who denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was a mere spirit, a phantom, not with a real human body. On the other extreme were the Arians, and they, well, they said he was not God but only man. And if you read the history and the doctrine of those times, the teaching on the person of Christ was described like a pendulum, going from extreme to extreme. 
And here were these early Christians caught up in the melee of these controversies of these early years of Christianity. And some were swayed by the impressions of the Gnostics. Some were swayed to deny the full Godhead of the Lord Jesus. But as one theologian put it, the pendulum came to a standstill in the middle. Jesus is both God and man. And therein lies the truth. And this is what John is testifying to. And our fellowship with the Father, our koinonia, our partnership with God is based on this twofold nature. He is God without conversion. He is man in totality. And the two natures come together in one glorious person, our Lord Jesus. And his unipersonality makes our Lord Jesus the perfect redeemer of our souls. And we have this partnership with God through the unique, glorious person of our Lord Jesus. Let's not miss the worth and the wonder that is in our Lord Jesus. Now, I emphasize that this was apostolic doctrine. And I rehearse again that when he's writing these first three verses, he does not use the first person singular. He uses the plural, we. We have heard. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon. Our hands have handled of the word of life. This was not just John's gospel. This was the only gospel, the apostolic gospel, the united message of those who had been appointed to be the very foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus. And of course, even Thomas, the man who was the skeptic for a time, he was certainly no yes man. And when he was invited by the Lord to put his hands into the nail prints of the Lord Jesus, he's the one that bowed the knee and said, my God, my Lord, and my God. He gave deity to Christ, but also he saw him and handled him in the flesh. And so we today, as the Christian church, take our stand for the Godhood of Christ, for his true humanity, for his being the mediator of the covenant of the people of God through whom we have this partnership with the Father. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't it great to be a Christian? We're not just here beating an old drum of historic doctrine for the sake of tradition. We have a living, personal faith and a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have all of him. And we have all of the Father. This God is our God. Am I quoting Ruth again? This God is our God. This is our glorious God. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in the public forum, in the political forum today, when you pray, if you ever asked to pray in a public forum, the, the, the defense of the gospel is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world doesn't like that. That's despised. But therein lies the blessedness of our Christian fellowship with our God and with his Son. Now, number two, the second revelation is found in verse 5. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him. Now, again, I emphasize it is not John's message. He's the message bearer. He's the messenger. And he is to speak to the people of God the message that he has heard. And he's declaring it unto them that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So here now is another way by which we have fellowship with God by recognizing that he is light, perfect light, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. Now in verse 5 at the end, you'll see how John defends that truth. He's not only light, but in him is no darkness at all. There's no mischief. There's no spot, no stain, no bad nature. There's no, he's not 99% light. He is altogether perfectly light. Meaning he's holy, righteous, immovable in his holy standard of morality. Now to illustrate just this a little bit, I think it's worth going to the book of James, looking at chapter 1 and verse um, 17. The book of James, chapter 1 and verse 17. You'll notice how God is described in this passage. We're talking obviously here about the nature and the character of God. Light is something of an analogy. It is describing God as light, which is purity. Here we read in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, that's a difficult turn of phrase to understand. The Greek term is paralage, and it refers to the sun at noonday in its meridian. And if you're standing on the equator and the sun is right above your head, there's no shadow. There's not a hint of a shadow with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is so perfect, so holy, so pure in his nature, that there's not even a hint 
of gray or corruption or anything that would move him from perfection. Now, if we're going to have fellowship with God, this is the term on which we fellowship with him. Because back in 1 John 1, 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him, declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. Our standard of morality and of holiness is no different from the absolute, strict, inviolable, moral standard of God. This is the God in whom we fellowship. And if we for a moment try to twist the nature of God and invent a God that is anything but perfect light. We have no fellowship with the true God. We are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. God will not change his nature. Therefore, we must. We who are sons of Adam, we who have the plague of sin in us, there must be a dramatic change in our nature, in our goals, in our desires, in our morality. We must leave the more immorality of the world and all its loose and wicked standards. And we must desire that we be conformed into the image of God's Son. And that's not just a physical likeness. That's character. That's holiness. That's the way we live. It's the way we walk. And this is how we have fellowship with God. And so holiness is the way to fellowship. There can be no communion while we seek a way of corruption or our own personal standards, there is no other way. And you'll see in verse 6, which is really a warning, because this is a high standard. This is what the whirling doesn't want to hear. And so we have this warning. If we say with our lips that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. It's impossible. And this only aggravates the sin that you're living in. You're not only walking in darkness, but you're lying that you have fellowship with God. That's a fearful statement and warning by the Apostle John. And so John's conclusion of the matter is this. An empty, lit profession of walking with God will not do. We need a new heart. We need a new nature. 
We need to be born of God. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need to be made new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so the true Christian will want the light of God to shine in. The true Christian will cry out for more light to shine into his soul. It's like the housewife in spring cleaning. If you're really interested in clean, take those mats out into the sunshine. Take the bedding out into the daylight. Now, if you want a cover-up job, don't do that. And the worldling says, no, I don't want more light. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want sin to be shown up. But the true Christian who's born of God has a nature desiring to be in the light that he might have more genuine fellowship with God. And down in verse 8 is really the application of this truth. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There will be confession of sin. There will be an acknowledgement that we do not meet that perfect standard of a God of perfect light. But by grace and by the call of the gospel, we want to have our sin exposed. We want to be brought into the light and we want to begin a walk with God in the light. And we're mindful for what the proverb in chapter 28 says, he that cover the sins shall not prosper. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And so because God is perfect light, the terms in which we have fellowship with him is to acknowledge his perfection and plead for his mercy, praying for his grace. For the sake of time, and not to prohibit the fellowship that's coming later, I'm going to move to point number three. The third revelation. The third wonder of it all. Because we can't stop now. We've opened up a can of worms where we have an impossibility. A sinful man or woman, guilt-ridden, powerless to change his own heart or her heart, and yet we're called to walk in the light as he is in the light, that we may have fellowship one with another. This third revelation is found in verse 7. Drumbeats. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, this is the genuine born-again Christian with an earnest desire for more light, to walk in the light. We have fellowship one with another. It's the same koinonia, same partnership, the same oneness with God. How is it possible? And the blood 
of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Cleanseth the perpetual, ongoing cleansing of the blood in the Christian's life. I call this a revelation because who would think of such a thing? The believer in Christ has taken the Lord as Savior in all the fullness of the power of his redemption, which is infinite, which means the payment for our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. Every sin has to go neath the cleansing flow. And so every hour that the Christian continues to live in these clay bodies that are subject to sinning, the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing and cleansing us. It's continual flow of cleansing power never stops. I can only liken it to the Niagara Falls. If you've never been there, you may have seen it in pictures or video. And there are those who get in that little ship, the Maid of the Mist, and they go right up toward the falls where the huge avalanche of water plunges and cascades down. And the spray comes up ever so high. And those who go in there, they do so with ponchos because they're going to get wet. And they're in under the spray. I am told that some can even get into ledges and the rocks right in behind that. And I think of the life of the Christian under the cleansing, constant flow of Jesus' blood. What a safe place to live. And while all around us we're tempted and haunted by sin, and while we confess our own struggles and our failures, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, to try and summarize this, because it's wonderful, but it's hard to state and communicate. I wrote this to the CMIs that sees sin, and to the same heart that confesses sin, is given a sight of the cleansing flow of Jesus' blood. By faith, therefore, we enter into fellowship with God joyfully, in confidence that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And while we have to confess in our daily walk that we are not perfect light, we are not God, but we desire to walk in the light as He is in the light. And our goal is that we do not sin. And we are grieved when we sin, when we fail. And we daily confess, forgive us our sins. 
And of course, the key fact in God's revelation of the blood of his Son as the basis of our fellowship is in that very word, cleanseth, E-T-H. And our KJV Bible helps us here. It's present tense. It keeps on cleansing. I could also liken it to a, a, a patient suffering some disease, some blood disease, and the doctor has an IV pouring medicine into the veins. The body is battling. And as the disease does its work, the medicine does its work. And the blood of Jesus Christ is our remedy to the awful curse of sin. Now, let me bring you back to verse 4 where John was thrilled to, to, to teach these things. And he says, These things write we unto you, that your joy might be full. Now, I looked up that word, and I was hoping to find some wonderful theological definition that would just blow us out of the water here tonight. But it's, it's just simply joy. It's just simply joy. Kara, we have a joy in our midst tonight. Kara. How do you define joy? To the, fo- to the soldier that's in the fear of the battle? It can only be when the victory was won. It can only be real peace when there is genuine peace. And praise God tonight, there is joy in our souls. We may not manifest it like the charismatics would try to do. We may not shout from the housetops as perhaps we should do. But as Christians tonight, as believers that are walking in the light as he is in the light, there is a joy in our souls. And some temperaments manifested differently from others. But there is in every believer's heart tonight a joy. It is a peace that passeth understanding. It is a blessedness that the world cannot give and cannot take away. And John was thrilled to write these things unto these people that they might have this fellowship, this this partnership with God. Through Christ the Son, through knowing God as the perfect righteous one. And later in the book, by the way, John seems to shift the statement to righteous. Being the righteous one. And that's the definition of God as perfectly pure. And then the revelation of the blood. We run to the cross. And as one true preacher said, keep short accounts with God. When we feel, when we sin, don't let it lag. Run to the cross. Plead the blood. Pray every day for the cleansing power of Jesus' blood in your life. And you will know the joy. David prayed, Create in me a clean heart, restore unto me 
the joy of thy salvation. He was a broken man. He was weeping in his dreadful sin. But God restored unto him the joy of his salvation. Let us, every one of us, live in this joy, this fellowship, this koinonia, this partnership. We are in everything that Christ is, we are. Paul referred in Romans 8 to us being joint heirs with Christ. He spoke this morning about being a wife united to her husband and all that that brings into her life. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is the reason we are shouting hallelujah within our souls. This is the message. What a wonderful message. And we've got a lost world who knows nothing about it. And they're trying the empty drags of this world. The vices. The things that are destroying them. But we have the gospel, this good news for a lost world. May the Lord use us and help us to be faithful and to praise him always. Our closing hymn is five, sorry, 458.